Hi, y'all. How's everybody doing? Good. Well, welcome to River House tonight. It's a good night. <laughs> so I want to talk tonight about living from your heart. When God created the Garden of Eden, he, he brought heaven to earth. And Adam and Eve were his family. They were his children. And he gave them everything, just like us mamas do. We give our kids everything we have, we want them to have. And that was how he was. He gave us everything, all dominion, all authority, all the inheritance of heaven. And the, great, the best part is that he met with them every day. He fathered them. He walked with them. I mean, I just stop and think about that. Like Adam and Eve walked in the garden with God. Like the God of the universe, the God who spoke the world into existence. They got to walk with him. And he fathered them and loved them and nurtured them and guided them. And I just have to wonder the stories he must have told them. Because, I mean, come on. Think of the stories that he had to tell. And so it was such a time of beautiful intimacy. They knew God and he knew them. Intimacy, into me you see. Genesis 2.25 said, Adam and his wife were both naked and felt no shame. They felt no shame. They were running around the garden with no clothes on, and it didn't matter. They were completely open, completely, hey, watch it over there. <laughs> we're, we're talking scripture now, come on. But they were vulnerable. They were living from their heart, just freely walking in love and nurturing. And uh, how beautiful that must have been. The plan was for God to create a big, happy, healthy, eternal family. Because God is all about family. He's all about community. I mean, the whole Bible is about basically all about one family. Family matters to God. And it matters to us. So the plan was for Adam and Eve to grow the garden, extend the borders, and, uh, and they, so the, the garden covered the whole world, right? Heaven on earth. Genesis 1-2 said, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and every living creature that moves on the ground. You got it all. He gave it all to them. Because he wanted them to create heaven on earth. But the enemy came along, as he always does. And he begins to speak lies to us, to them. And he still does it to us. And uh, bummer for them, they listened. They listened, and he deceived them. And he, the enemy came and stole everything. He took it. And shame came in. And when shame comes in, it breaks intimate connection. It broke the connection with the Father, and it broke connection with one another. And what did they immediately go and do? They went and found fig leaves, and they went and hid from the Lord. Shame always makes us hide, and it always destroys connection. Genesis 3.8, it says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. Yeah. Jesus came, the good news, back. He said, no. He came to buy it all back. 
He said, no, no, we created it for them, our children, to live. And so he did whatever he had to do to buy it back. Hebrews 12, 2 says, looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and now sits at the right hand of the Father. So Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and the Bible says that he was in such turmoil that he literally sweat blood. I mean, drops of blood. I mean, I can't even, I can't even fathom that because I've been in some pretty deep turmoil, and I've never seen blood drop down yet. So... <laughs> I'm glad you thought that was funny. But seriously, though, think of, of what he must have been feeling, you know. And, and he said to the Lord, you know, Father, if you can take this cup from me, please do. But ultimately, not my will, your will be done. Because Jesus was sweating blood because he knew what he was about to suffer. I'm going to tell you that it was going to be traumatic and brutal. And, uh, and I can tell you that I, I know if I were in his shoes, I, w- I would not want to step forward into all of that. And, uh, and yet he did it because of the joy set before him. And that joy was you. That joy was you. That joy is me. See, the family was so important to the father, to the son, that they were willing to do something so brutal, so dramatic and traumatic to buy us back, to bring us back into the family, to give us back our inheritance so that we could live in the abundant life that we were created to live in. We matter. We're important. He gave up his life so that we could again walk intimately with the Father. That's how much it matters. God wants intimacy with us. And I want to tell you tonight that you matter. You matter. You are important. You are so loved. The Father loves you so much. That he allowed his son to go places that a parent would never do. Never. But that was the power of his love. And so you are loved. You are loved. You matter. And what does the enemy come along and do? The same thing to us that he did to Adam and Eve, right? He comes along and he starts whispering in our ear. And the Bible says he's a master deceiver. And he comes along and he deceives us. But what we have to do is we have to learn from Adam and Eve. We can't do what they did. We have to stop it here. Stop listening to his lies. Stop giving in. Yes, they're going to come at us. They won't stop. They're going to continue to come day after day after day. But he that is in us is greater than he that comes against us. We have the faith to stand against it and say no more. I am tired of surrendering my power over and over and over only to lead me to places of complete defeat because I listened to the deceiver, right? So what do we do? We go opposite spirit. So when the lie comes, you acknowledge it. 
okay, but you don't wrap an emotion around it. You immediately say, that is not from God. And what does the enemy tell us? You're not enough. You're not thin enough. You're not pretty enough. You're not smart enough. You're not spiritual enough. You are not enough, right? Let me see a raise of hands. How many of you can relate to that? Okay, so what are we going to do? You're not enough. What are you going to do? I am more than enough. Jesus loves me so much that, that he died for me. I am enough. You are not important. I am important. I am important to God. I'm important to this church. I'm important to my family. And you stand in the truth, right? Peter says, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, but resist him. Firm in your faith. Martin Luther says, I can't stop the birds from flying over my head, but I can stop them from building a nest in my hair. Amen? Amen? So when I was the, in the middle of my wilderness journey, um, watched my whole world fall apart, literally, and uh, I had made a covenant with God and, uh, because I wanted to quit and God didn't want me to quit. He wanted me to keep going. And all I could see is my life in ashes, having no idea where I was heading and where I was going. And one day the Lord woke me up and he said, I want you to move to Orange County. And he gave me three scriptures. And before I ever got out of bed the next morning, he confirmed them. So I had a decision to make. I was in covenant with him. And now he's telling me to move someplace where I don't know anybody. And, and that's going to be a complicated move. Uh, so many things involved in that move. And I obeyed because I had to, because I trust him, because I know he's good. I know his ways are not my ways. And so I made the decision to go. And as I was leaving town, I was pounding down the gates of heaven. Lord, I was quoting scripture at him. I was praying for my family. I mean, I was going after it. And all of a sudden, I saw a vision. And it was me pulling up to a big, majestic estate. And I went to the front door, and I'm beating down the front door, ringing the doorbell, and nobody's answering. All of a sudden, the groundskeeper comes, and he says, Robin, the do front door is bolted, but you have a key to the back door. So I, I went around. I went in the back door, and I walk into this kitchen that smells of beautiful fragrance or smells. And, and I looked, and there was a whole group of very powerful people, and they were just finishing eating in a dining room. And they walked over, and they were sitting in the family room, big, beautiful furniture. And you could tell this was, you know, a very wealthy home. And the owner of the home, he was talking, and you could tell people had utmost respect because when he spoke, they listened. And he starts telling a story. He's very charismatic, and I'm watching all of this. And all of a sudden, he hears something. And he turns, and he gets a big smile on his face. And here comes his little girl in her little pajamas with, with feet. With fits, and she's coming down the aisle. And, uh, and she jumps up on her dad's lap. And they go into this beautiful moment of sheer love. He's kissing, and she's kissing all over his face, and they're doing little butterfly kisses, and it's just this precious, sweet moment. And then the mother comes and takes her away, and, and he watches her. 
until she's all the way down and he can't see her anymore. And then he remembers the group. Oh, yes, where was I? And he goes back to telling his story. And as I stood there, tears began to fall down my face. And God said to me, Robin, you are that little girl. You are my girl. And he said, Robin, you don't have to pound the, the, down the door of heaven. He said, all you have to do is come and crawl up on my lap and tell me what you need from me because I'm a good father and I love you. And it was the first time that I really got a glimpse of how important I really was. I really mattered. And even though the world around me seemed to be crumbling, God wasn't. He was strong. His love was pure. And I knew that I could keep my heart open. And I could trust him on this crazy journey. We are his sons. And we are his daughters. And we have his undivided attention anytime we want it. Do you realize that? We don't have to wait in line for God. We don't have to be put on hold. We don't. Anytime we come and we, we stop and acknowledge him, he turns and he gives us his undivided attention. And he listens and he cares and he feels what we feel. He knows us and we know him and we know that he is good. He wants us to live from a place of abundance. He wants us to live in intimacy with one another and with him. It's important to him. Brene Brown, who's a research professor who studies people, says that most people live with their heart armored up, locked away. And in order to live from our heart, we must first unlock it. And that's what I want to talk about today. I spent most of my life not really knowing what was going on. It wasn't until about 15 years ago I went to a seminar very similar to Journey to Wholeness. And it was the first time that I had to look, truly look at what it was. And let me tell you, I wanted to go get some fig leaves and I wanted to go cover up and hide. Like, this is too much. Like, and especially when you're older, it is really hard to get real with your heart. Because you have to face things that you've been doing your whole life that weren't right. And so a lot of older people just decide to not go there. And they're just going to go ahead and just keep living the way they're living. But I was like, I'm not going to go to shame. I, the, the value that I found is at least I know that I have a lot of trauma and a lot of pain hidden in my heart. Instead of dealing with it, I pushed it down year after year after year. On top of that, I had a lot of brokenness. And I had been in denial about it. The third thing, when the most shocking to me, because I always thought I was this free spirit. I just move with the wind, and I'm just so free and open with every human being I meet. No, I wasn't. My heart was locked in a cage, and I did not know that. So here I am, and I decided 
that I was going to find wholeness. I didn't care how, when, where, what, how. I was going to go after this brokenness. I was going to go after this pain. And I was going to figure out how to unlock my heart. And listen, I want to tell you something. I want to give every one of you permission tonight. I want to give you permission to not be perfect. Right? Take a deep breath on that one. You do not have to be perfect. Amen? Religion demands perfection. Family loves progress. So give yourself grace. Just give yourself grace tonight and say, I don't have to have it all together. I don't. I just have to be willing to know what's going on in here. Right? Why do our hearts get locked up? I want to talk about four ways. I'm just going to do it quickly. The first one is shame. Brene Brown says that shame is the web of unobtainable, conflicting, competing expectations about who we're supposed to be, and it's a straitjacket. Shame wants to tell us that we're never enough. No matter how hard we try, and Lord knows how we try, shame just continues to tell us you will never really be what you think you are. You'll never make it. You're never going to get the right job. You're never going to, you're just going to always, you're just always settle because you don't have what it takes. And so when that happens, we, we feel down and we get discouraged and we feel shame and we lock up. Shame always makes us lock. The next thing is that we care too much about what people say about us and think about us. We really do. And let me tell you, that's been a battle for me. I don't want to get up and preach because I'm making myself way too vulnerable, and then I don't know what you think of me. But you know what? I'm not giving in to that. I'm going to get up here. I'm going to make myself vulnerable, and I'm going to preach it. Right? Yes. Because if we live our life trying to please man and trying to make everybody think good of us, it's like a rat running on a treadmill. It takes you nowhere fast, right? And it's so exhausting. And what's even worse is so often we don't think very good of ourselves. And then we project what we think of ourselves. We project that on you. you that's what you think of me. I know it is. That's why you never asked me to be on prayer team. Because you don't think I'm powerful enough. You don't think I'm spiritual enough. And then I start getting an attitude towards her. I'm offended by her. She's done nothing nothing. But she runs prayer group and she's never asked me to do it. And so I put my own junk on her and then I look for ways that confirm it. See, see, there she is. She's talking to that person. She invited them. She's never asked me to do it. And we continue to do that with you, with you, with you, with you, with you. We just continue to do that over and over and over. And pretty soon, that is just a spiral. That is, a, that is going downhill fast. So we have to quit caring what people think about us. So just forget what they think. Go do what you do. And who cares what anybody thinks or says about it, right? Yeah. Amen. <laughs> The next one is a big one. 
and that is we compare ourselves to other people. I have discovered that there is an infinite number of categories that we can compare. And there is almost an infinite number of people that we can compare ourselves to. So if you are on that cycle, that is a cycle of destructive living. And that road will go on and on and on, and there will never be an end. So listen to me. If that's you, it's time to break that destructive pattern. Nothing good comes from comparing ourselves, ever. It is lose-lose. I either compare myself to you, and you're prettier than me, and you're smarter than me, and you're more spiritual than me, and what am I going to do? I'm going to get defeated. I'm going to get down on myself. I'm going to get insecure, and I'm going to lock up, right? Or I come over and I compare myself to you and I find that I am prettier than you. And that maybe I'm more spiritual than you. And maybe I've got it together more than you do. And then what happens? I get prideful. Now what have I created? This negative atmosphere that I now live in. And guess what? I carry it everywhere I go. And you know what? People smell pride. Ugh. Right? They smell it. See it. Feel it. Ugh. So comparing is always, always going to take you places that you never want to go. We think the next one is that we live in a culture of scarcity. We think there's never going to be enough. There's never enough jobs for us. There's never enough food in the refrigerator. There's never enough money in the bank account. We're never, never, never enough resources. And so we get this scarcity mindset that leads us to, to a, a place of fear, right? And on top of that, we're never thin enough. We're never smart enough. We're, our hair's never good enough. You know, it's always, there's never going to be enough. And so what we do is, is we start to, to panic. We start to get this negative energy going on, and we get scared. And so we armor up, right? And what that is, it's an orphan mindset. And if you were here when I preached a while back, I talked about that. We either live like a son or a daughter, or we live like an orphan. If you live like a son or daughter, think about walking in the garden with Jesus. He walks with you. He talks with you. He loves you. You know that you're loved no matter what your circumstances are. You know you have a good father who truly loves you, who has a plan for your life, and he's good. And so you can trust him. And that he's the God that will supply all of your needs according to the riches of his glory. That's how a son or daughter thinks. But an orphan, an orphan says, well, if it's going to happen, I have to make it happen. Like, I've got to figure this out. I've got to, I've got to bust the door down. I've got to do that. There's never enough, so I've got to, I've got to sneak and I've got to hide. And, uh, and I've got to, I've got, uh, it's up to me. And, and living like an orphan, I mean, that takes you to a place that, that is really a miserable place to be. That's a painful place to be. So, again, if we live with that mindset of lack, then we're going to constantly be layering up just to protect ourselves from all the pain and all the shame. So if you're living as an orphan, figure it out. If I described you tonight, now I've given you a gift. Go and figure out what you're going to do about that. Go and figure out how you need to step into being a son or being a daughter so that you can learn to live with an open heart. So life gets hard. 
We allow shame in. We care too much about what people think. Um, we live like an or orphan, and we compare ourselves to other people. And it all leads to pain. And pain causes us to truly lock our hearts. We don't want people to know who we really are. We don't want people to know what we're really going through. We don't want people to know what we think of the world. We don't want them to know what we think of the church. We hide it all in here. And we create safe places to keep us protected. We create places like perfectionism, like intellectualism, like athleticism, and the isms go on and on. And the places go on and on and on. And the primary goal is to protect ourselves from having to feel pain. The truth is, the truth is, is these places really aren't safe at all. They are just places that the enemy uses to keep us from living from our heart. To keep us living in a place of intimacy where love is flowing in and it's flowing out and it's flowing up and it's flowing down. And we live in this place that we were created to live. They're not safe at all. They're planned out by this deceiver of your soul. And I want to tell you, Jesus cares about your heart. He cares about what you feel. He cares. He cares about what you're going through. Every single bit of it. He gets up publicly. In fact, on his first public sermon, his very first time that he gets up publicly, he's in Nazareth and he goes into the synagogue. When he walks in, they hand him the scroll from the, the prophet Isaiah. So Jesus starts to unroll the scroll looking for a scripture. And you know that whatever he's about to share is going to be really, really important to him, right? It's the first thing he gives. And what does he go to? Isaiah 61. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and to set the captive free and release the prisoners from the darkness and proclaim the year of the favor of the Lord. You see, Jesus came to take care of our heart. He came to bind it up to help us deal with the past hurts, to help us figure out how to get it out of the cage, to set it free, right? Because he cares about us. He wants us to be free. He wants us to be free to live in the creation that he made for us. He wants us to live in what Jesus came and bought back for us. He wants us to be who we are wholly, completely, wholeheartedly who we are because we are amazing. We are created in his image. I want you to know that our circumstances don't change until the heart changes. God changes our heart before he changes our life. Ezekiel 36, 26 says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart 
of flesh. So what is the key that unlocks the heart? Anybody know? One word. What is the key that unlocks the heart? I'll show you the the sign language for it. Anybody know? It's called vulnerability. Vulnerability. Let me tell you what it isn't before I tell you what it is. Vulnerability is not weakness. The sign language for vulnerability actually it was not what I just showed you. It, it, the language actually showed weakness. And, the, and the, there's a community of people that said, no, that's not the right word. So they have come up with this new word for vulnerability. And basically what they're saying is, we once were hidden and now we're open. We once were hidden and now we are open. And so they're trying to, to make this the new, the new word for vulnerability. And vulnerability is definitely not weakness. In fact, it takes great strength and great courage to be vulnerable. The people that I respect most in life are people who open themselves and let themselves be known. Vulnerability is the core of all emotion and feelings. To feel is to be vulnerable. You know, I have seen so many people who shut their emotions down. They just don't go there. They, they feel numb. Then take the risk of getting real and authentic. So they push their emotions away because it's too risky to be known. The sad part about that is they walk away from the very thing that brings passion and purpose to their lives. Our emotions are a part of who we are. And we need to feel everything that comes. Brene goes on to say in her book, Daring Greatly, she says, vulnerability is the cradle of the emotions and experiences that we crave. We want deeper and more meaningful spiritual lives. Vulnerability is the birthplace of love, belonging, joy, courage, and creativity. If we want greater clarity or more meaningful spiritual lives, vulnerability is the path. If we want to stop feeling numb, if we want to start feeling alive again, if we want to start feeling passion, I know the way. It's called stepping into vulnerability. It will change your entire life if you choose to go there. In order to do that, it starts with allowing ourselves to be known. It's time to get rid of the fig leaves and come out of hiding. It's time to let yourself take the risk. Yes, you may get hurt, but it's worth the risk. You see, because we can only love and be loved as much as we are willing to allow ourselves to feel pain. 
Think on that. Our capacity for wholeheartedness can never be greater than our willingness to be brokenhearted. We must risk because we were not meant to live a guarded, protected life. We were meant to live wholehearted, authentic lives. If I asked your heart questions, because by the way, did you know your heart speaks? It really does. Your heart, your emotions, they have a voice. But what happens is we ignore them. We never take time to ask our heart questions. You'd be amazed at what your heart will say. What are the, let it speak. So if I asked you, if I asked your heart tonight, what are the two most important things that you need? What would your heart tell me? I need, what was that? Love. I need to be loved. That is what your heart says. I desperately need to be loved. And the other thing that your heart would say is I need to belong. Right? We need to be loved and we need to belong. And I'm going to tell you that the way that we get those needs met is by opening up our hearts and getting vulnerable. And if we do that, no matter what circumstances are going on in our lives, no matter who's in our life, no matter what we're doing, if we are living with that open heart, we will always be loved. We will always have people to love. And we will always have family. May not be blood, but we will always have family. I told you that God called me to go to Orange County. I didn't know a soul. I ended up having one friend there. And I had just arrived, just gotten myself set up, and I have never been more alone in my entire life. Like, scary alone. I was clinging to God, and I got a phone call from a girl that I didn't know very well, but she lived in Boise. And she said, Robin, my stepdad, who's no longer married to my mom, just had a stroke and he's in the hospital, and I know it's in Orange County. Would you be willing to go and visit him? And I was like, yes. Yes, please, tell me where he is. So I showed up at the hospital. Long story short, he had made a mess, and I couldn't get into his room. And so I'm standing outside of the room thinking, okay, like it took me 45 minutes to get here. I don't want to leave. Like, what do I do? And all of a sudden, I felt compelled to go and visit people who didn't get visitors. And so I went up to the front desk, and I said, hi, I'm Robin, and this is what I want to do. Is there anybody that, you know, I could go and visit? And the lady looks at me. She's like, who are you, and where, where are you from? And I, honestly, it was the first time in my life I didn't, I mean, I knew my name, but I, I couldn't think what to say. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm not the, the retreat leader. I'm not the Bible study teacher. I'm not so-and-so's wife anymore. I, I, my kids aren't with me. I'm not so-and-so's mother. Like, I stood there with this blank look. And she's like, and I was like, well, I'm, 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 I'm nobody. And she looked at me. She goes, who are you? I was like, she's going to make me say that again. I looked at her and I said, I'm nobody. She comes around that, that desk 
she grabs me by the arm and she goes, well, of course you're somebody. And she's pulling me. Of course you're somebody. You're a volunteer. I was like, oh, okay. Okay. Where are we going? She, listen, I'm telling you the truth. She's dragging me through this office. She starts introducing me to people. This is Robin. She's our new volunteer. No, oh, this is Robin. So-and-so. This is Robin. She's our new volunteer. And I was like, okay. And then she sat me down. She gave me a clipboard. She goes, sign right there. And as I'm signing, she sticks a needle in my arm. I was like, wait, what, what did you just do to me? And she goes, okay, well, Tuesdays and Thursdays work for you. I was like, um, well, I, yeah, I have no life. Yes, that'd be perfect. I'll, I'll be there. What, what time? And so I became a, a volunteer at a nursing home. And uh, after I got my shot and everything, I got my paperwork and got my schedule, I went back to visit. His name was Jim. And I went into his room. And I'm telling you, it was one of the most awkward moments of my life because he was probably old enough to be my dad, a very handsome older man, but he was trapped inside of his body. He was there, but he couldn't communicate, could, didn't have control of movement, and I just, I didn't know what to say. It was just this moment where... I couldn't find my words, and I was awkward, and, but I continued to come every Tuesday and every Thursday, and I would go visit all the other people, and, and, uh, and then I would go and spend most of my time with Jim, and day after day, after visit after visit, I would, I would read the word to him. I was going through the hardest time in my life. I would tell him my stories. And then I'd get my Bible open and I'd start preaching to him. I'd start bringing heaven into that room. I would be boldly praying and I would speak life over him. And all he ever did was just look, you know. <laughs> so one day I showed up. On my Tuesday morning, and the director of the hospital was waiting for me. And I walked in. She goes, Robin Werner? And I was like, yes. And she said, um, we need to speak with you. Follow me. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. Like, I, did, I, did I do something? I'm trying to rack my brain. Like, okay, last week I brought chocolate-covered strawberries. Did they, did they get sick? Like, what did I do? <laughs> and so I went in the office, and there was a man and a woman about my age in there, and they were clearly not happy and so I sat down, and I said, is everything okay? And she introduced me, and she said, this is Jim's son and his daughter-in-law, and they have a few questions for you. I said, okay. And my friend here apparently did not get along with him, and she told me not to tell that I was connected to her. So here I am, and he goes, who are you? I started to do the same thing. Oh, nobody. I'm, not, I'm, I'm nobody. But the Lord was like, no, you need to tell him who you are. And so I begin to tell him why, who I was and how I ended up here. And he's like, okay, but that was five months ago. Why are you still here? And I, I looked at him, and it was like I realized I'm still here because I love your dad. But I didn't tell him that. I just said, well, I'm, I'm still here because I, I want to be and because... Because I'm a volunteer. <laughs> That's why I'm here. <laughs> and uh, long story, but he ended up 
um, telling me that I could continue coming, but never when the family was there. He did not want me in that room. So one day I show up, bopping in, Jim, I'm here. I went straight to his bed, and I turned, and his family was sitting there. And so I immediately said, I'm so sorry, I'll, I'll come back. And I started to leave. And as I began to leave the room, Jim, with everything that he had, began yelling for me. Like trying to find his words, trying to tell me, don't leave, don't leave, come back. And I'm standing there, never in five, six months have I ever seen Jim communicate. And he's calling me back. And I look at his son and he's like, you can come back in. And so I came back in and as I did, Jim lifted his hand And he took my hand, and tears began to fall down his cheeks. He loved me, and I loved him. Never heard a word come out of his mouth, not ever. But we were intimate. He felt like a father to me, and I know that I felt like a daughter to him. He ended up passing away, and... uh, I was so very sad. But I got a phone call from his son, and he asked me if I would speak at his funeral. He must have heard me preaching. Speaking at Jim's funeral was one of the most honoring experiences of my entire life. I got up and shared about this amazing man and who he was And how I loved him. And how I couldn't wait for the day that I would see him in heaven. And he would wrap his arms around me and thank me for walking through the hardest thing he had ever been through. And I would turn around and thank him for walking through the hardest time that I had ever been through. That is what it looks like to live with an open heart. We get to love And we get to be loved no matter where we are, no matter what our circumstances are. We get to be loved. It's risky to live from our heart, but it's worth it. My heart's desire for River House is that we live in a culture of authenticity that we live real, that we live not hiding, but open, that we tell our stories to one another, that we truly love one another. But it can be messy, and I know that. And that is why it is so important that we learn to protect one another's heart. And let me tell you a ways to do that. I'm going to tell you the difference between sympathy and empathy. Empathy creates deep connection. Empathy feels with you, right? But in order to feel with someone, you have to connect with something inside of you that brings up that feeling in you. But that's what love does, right? I am willing to feel pain because you're feeling pain, Kim. I am willing to listen to your story with with an open heart, and I'm willing to feel your pain. 
because I care about you. That is what empathy looks like. Sympathy, it destroys connection because sympathy says, I'm feeling for you. Bless you. I'll pray for you. Bless you. Let me ask you a question. You're hurting. You've got some pain going on, and you go to a friend, and you just need to share with them. So you begin to open up and give them some of your heart and show them your pain. You're getting vulnerable, and you look in their eyes, and you know they get it. You know it. They may not even say anything. You can see it on them. Or they may just be like, I I know. I know. I've been there. How does that make you feel? Yeah. Loved. You belong. You're understood. You're seen. You're known. It feels so good. Now change it. You're sitting in that same situation. You're opening up. You're giving your pain. And you look over and you can tell there is no connection. They're not feeling it. They're not with you. How does that make you feel? It hurts. You feel alone. And you want to shut down and you want to lock back up, right? So we want to be a people that empathizes with one another. When we sit down and somebody is sharing with us, we want to be somebody who listens with our whole heart, who listens with an open heart, right? We want to hear. And maybe you don't even get to talk that whole entire lunchtime. Maybe you just, it's not your turn, but you just listen with a whole heart to them. And I guarantee you, that deep, intimate connection will happen. And next time, they're going to say, no, I want to hear from you. I want to hear your heart this time. Love looks like something. And that something is empathizing with one another. It's carrying one another's burdens. Galatians 6, 2 says, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. People don't care what you know until they know that you care. So let's be a community that truly loves well. I want to end with Corinthians. It says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not compare. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes. It always perseveres. Love never fails.
I'm going to invite the prayer team up. Let's pray. Lord, search us. Search us, O Lord, and see if there be any wicked way within us and renew a right heart in us. God, I pray that you open our eyes so that we may become aware of what is going on in our heart. And I pray, God, that you give every single person courage, courage to take a look at it. Courage, God. So they deal with it now. They look at it now and they don't wait until they're in their 40s and their 50s when midlife crisis hits because they've been ignoring their heart and all of a sudden their heart is not happy. So God, I pray that you help us to go where we need to go today. No matter how old we are, no matter how young we are, I pray, God, that you will give us courage to be people who, who know who we are, who can live from our heart, and who can love well. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.